Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where your unique self and business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Samir Hasija. Samir is Professor and Area Chair of Technology and Operations Management at INSEAD, which has been called the best business school in the world. Samir emphasizes the role of process-based innovation in creating new business models and or fresh competitive positioning for existing models. He is the co-author of the book, The Phoenix Encounter Method, Lead Like Your Business is on Fire. Welcome to the podcast, Samir. I'm delighted to have you here. Uh, Thank you, Ursula, for having me. So uh, I was very intrigued by uh, aspects of the book where this Phoenix metaphor of burning a business to the ground and resurrecting it from the ashes, it's bound to strike fear in the heart of an entrepreneur <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and a CEO. So how do you work through that with people in terms of their uh, that imagery kind of being in their minds when they first hear about your method? Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, this definitely is, is taking people out of their comfort zone. But one of the things that we've realized and observed over the years, that the, the main reason why organizations get disrupted is not because they, they couldn't figure out what was a good thing to do, it's because once they figured out what is good, they, they continue on that path, even when the realities and circumstances in the future may change. And in some sense, mm. what happens is that what made you successful in the past continues to be the mantra of the future without realizing that the future conditions may have completely changed. So what we tell them is that we need to, we need to unlearn some of the things. And more importantly, we need to build a sense of urgency in order to, to do things which will help you make your organization future-proof. And mm-hmm. rather than actually burning down to the gl- ground, why don't you do this as a thought experiment and imagine a complete destruction from which you then need to understand what you need to do in order to avoid such a destruction. So so once once we are able to explain the rationale, we see that people are quite quite comfortable trying to do this, and they see the real value of trying to do this because they realize themselves that had they not done this, they were going down a path which would have eventually put them into real trouble, whereas this intervention put them into a simulated trouble and preempted the trouble and in some sense helped them avoid it. So really doing that kind of thought experiment or modeling really helps you to look at things from a completely different perspective and therefore to take a different direction rather than continuing on the, the well-worn path. Uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, we're all, we're all guilty of this. So, so 
you know, in some sense, you need an external shock. You need somebody to kind of shake you off that path. And rather than reality, we believe it's better to do it in a, in a thought experiment manner and, and just preempt everything. Mm-hmm. I, I was also quite struck by the, the kind of, um, I guess, sort of battleground or militaristic sort of languaging that happens in, in, the, in your book. And um, I was surprised by it because I, I think a lot of the dialogue recently around business has been much more of a multi-stakeholder approach uh, rather than a us versus them kind of tactic. Why, why did you, as the authors, uh, come upon, uh, why did you decide to continue with that kind of languaging that's kind of been used a lot in the past, but not so much recently? See, the way, uh, the way we sort of thought about this, and, and I mean, this is a great question because this is something that we thought about quite consciously. And our aim was to make sure that we create as much of an impact in terms of the sense of urgency as possible. And so we really thought that if we can create a metaphor which is very vivid and makes people sort of think through how how bad things can get should they not uh, should they not try and figure out what would be the 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 course that they should be taking as opposed to the one they're currently on, then we wouldn't have impact. Now, so we use this terminology in order to shake people up. However, once we ask the the, the leaders and the, the executives and the entrepreneurs of what should you be doing, and in that part of the, 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 the process, we ask them to think about the alliances the, the ecosystem, the, the multi-perspective uh, stakeholder view in order to build a robust course of action going forward. So, so we do start with a battleground analogy and, and very mm-hmm. kind of strong metaphors. But towards the end where we talk about, you know, making the change and then embedding the change in the organization to, to future-proof yourself, we, we do try and take the terminology more towards alliances and ecosystems and, and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I know at one point in the book, you said uh, stakeholder views are central to strategic, strategic dialogue. And that sounds an awful lot like conscious capitalism. It, it is because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we need to understand that, you know, if you're, if you're wearing blinkers and, and, and looking at our, our view, our world in a very narrow view, we will miss out on perspectives that are extremely important for our organization. And these perspectives are not just shareholders. So we're very careful in, in saying it's the stakeholder because you know this, this view of the organization's job is to simply maximize shareholder value is, is simply not true in today's world. There are stakeholders mm. which are, who, are, who are much more diverse than just the shareholders. They are your employees, they are your customers, they're also your shareholders. And having a holistic view is, in our opinion, a more sustainable way, a more kind of, um, a more amenable way of taking your business forward rather than just having a very narrow view of what the business should be catering to. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know that uh, you and I believe a couple of your uh, co-authors are um, academics primarily. And what do you think having that, 
uh, perspective from academia, what do you think that brings to uh, developing a process like this? Because it's, it's not necessarily the norm uh, to have an, an academic perspective. Um, it tends to, a lot of processes tend to come from something developed internally within companies. So I'm curious about how you weave that together with your academic background and your own business experience. Uh, I, I think this is a very important question. So, you know, from obviously my answer is also going to be a bit biased to be very honest with you, <laughs> but, uh-huh. but my, my perspective on this is that the importance of, of academia comes in two ways. The, the first way is that by the nature of our engagement with with executives we are not anchored into one industry or one sector or one geography we just by the nature of our business interact with executives that come from all over the world from all sorts of industries and so what that does is that helps us develop a process which is context agnostic something that can be Mm -hmm. universally applied and because we deal with executives, uh, you know, we've tried this process with more than 1,500 executives. Because we've done it with them in, in, our, uh, you know, in, in our amphitheaters, in our classrooms, who have then gone ahead and kind of implemented this in, our, in, in their realities. And you know, we document a lot of those stories in the book. Of course, we anonymize them. That gives us what we call as, uh, some sort of validation, which is from, from the practice point of view. So it kind of combines the, the, the multiplicity of the, of, uh, of the applica- applicability of, of this process. The other thing is that, you know, we also need to make sure that what we are talking about is, is vetted in, in some sort of a rigorous study and not just uh, applied in an anecdotal, anecdotal manner. So mm-hmm. much of this process is, is, has been developed by research that has come about and this is not just our research. This is research that has come about by academics all over the world uh, over, you know, over a few decades. So it's not even just that what we've done in the last few years. And so we, you know, being academics, we've, we've studied that, we've, we've read up on that, and we've extracted, you know, valuable insights from those research and then kind of put this process together, which, like I said earlier, is then validated in its applicability by working with these executives that come from, like I said, all over the place uh, and all sorts of industries. So there, I think Mm. being an academic gives us a slightly unique advantage uh, as opposed to uh, purely developing this within one organization in one context. Hmm. Well, I know that you're in your process, you really mix things up when it comes to the generating ideas part of the process in terms of different industries and regions. And I think that's really valuable because people can be quite defensive that they, they think, well, yeah, but that's not true for my industry. Um, but you haven't found that and I haven't found that to be the case. Uh, absolutely. And, and it, it is fascinating to us how the mindset shifts before and after we run this process, where going in, there's a non-trivial number of uh, senior business leaders who, who really tell us that, listen, I, I'm not too sure if this process is going to work with me because you know, I belong to a, a company or an industry where I really don't envision the possibility of 
a disruption of the nature that your process is advocating. When they come out of it, uh, they tell us that I have no idea what I was thinking. My head was in the sand because we were really vulnerable. We just didn't see it. And the insights that, that you know, the group members that were working with, with me provided allowed me to see my own business in such a different way that I previously could not have even conceived. And that to me is, is, is such an aha moment because, because that is precisely what this, what this process is trying to do, which is break the blinkers. And, and we find that, you know, like I said, a non-trivial number of business leaders and executives have this sort of an aha moment. Hmm. Well, how one, one thing that occurred to me is people might be a little wary of sharing quite uh, intimate details of their strategy or their strategic approach. Is that um, is that something that people you find are willing to address with people outside of the organization, or is that part of the approach that you're mixing up industries so that there's not a concern about sharing information? Certainly. So when we do this, we 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 get people mixed up in groups in a way that we minimize any sort of conflict uh, as possible. Of course, there are tactical ways of also addressing these issues by going through NDAs and so on and so forth. But Ursula, I also hmm. want to point out something that we've also run this process where all the members of the group belong to the same company, which is where there is no conflict. Now there, of course, the diversity of the view is limited in the sense that they all belong to the same context sure. and the same company. And how we right. sort of get some amount of diversity is to make sure that the people who are still in a group at least do not belong to the same function, that they, they represent different parts of the organization. They represent perhaps different generations within the organization, and they perhaps represent different you know, ways of thinking, be it because they belong to different genders, they belong to different age groups, they belong to different functions, so on and so forth. So we try and, you know, within the constraints, create as much diversity of thought as possible. And to our observation and experience, that also uh, definitely helps in creating uh, non-conventional or non-kind of standardized thinking and perhaps not as diverse as what you could get if you bring people from all over the world, from all sorts of companies, but it still does the role uh, to a fairly effective manner. Mm. Well, something that you talk about um, in the book is having a Phoenix attitude and those you describe as mindset behaviors and habits that lead to, that can help lead to major disruption to make the kind of changes that the process identifies as possible. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about what's involved in that and, and what enables that kind of attitude? I'm, I'm assuming that not everybody is necessarily enters into the process with uh, complete openness to, to the kinds of change that they end up identifying. But um, I'm curious how you, how you see that in people as the process unfolds. I actually, this, to me, this is the crux of the matter. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, your strategy playbook is your strategy playbook. But what stops from having a playbook that can help an organization become future-proof is the mindset, mm -hmm. is the attitude. So more than creating your strategy, which of course this process will help you do, what it really does is change the mindset, change the attitude. 
going in, having the Phoenix kind of attitude, the ability to, to have the confidence to completely redo uh, your business and, and, and foresee disruption and preempt it, that kind of attitude is not common if anything, uh, if we are even lucky to find it. What the process does, of course, is it, it shines light on the importance of having this attitude which then to me is the first step in terms of changing mindsets in taking the mindset which is needed in order to you know take this oncoming disruption uh, head on and 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 deal with it in a way that you come out uh, come out successful so you know basically the point that i really want to emphasize here is that the way we envision this process is to not only give you options for creating your future-proof playbook, but this process also helps in shaping the mindsets which ultimately results in what we call as the Phoenix attitude. Well, I know you mentioned uh, four different enablers of the attitude. So uh, emotional intelligence, business acumen, effective communication, and talent development capabilities, which I thought was a really great thing to highlight. It's not something you often see on a list in terms of leadership capabilities. Can you tell us more about why those four components seem to be so important? I mean, we observe, this came out of our observation of, you know, dealing with these executives, because the, the way we started looking at this is that as we would go through the encounter, and as you know, senior business leaders would start recognizing what is it that they need to do in the future in order to future-proof them their organizations. They were also based on a series of, you know, questions that we kind of gave, gave to them, recognize the gaps that they currently have in their own ability to be the, you know, to, to be the captain of the ship that is going to take, take them on this new course. And once they started recognizing the gaps in their own ability, that's when we sort of categorize where these gaps are. And as you can imagine, like, I mean, let's just go into, you know, we don't have to go into the details, but let's just go into one of those things where you said talent development. Well, one of the mm -hmm. biggest gaps that C-suite executives that we've noticed is that they don't pay enough attention to what kind of capabilities do they need in terms of the people that, that work with them and for them, right? And, mm -hmm. and not paying enough attention to this ends up them getting surrounded by, by uh, suboptimal uh, skill sets, which they are not able to leverage uh, effectively in order to, to, to make their organizations, uh, you know, handle any kind of uh, disruption event in the future. And, and by the time the disruption comes in, it's a bit too late. And then they're scrambling for help. And, and they just didn't have the help because they just didn't they have the skill sets around them. So, like I said, once you go through the exercise, you not only start developing the mindsets and the strategy, you, you also start seeing what kind of capabilities are missing and how are you going to plug those gaps. And, and, and to us, this is a great way of a business leader to, to then see how exactly are they going to operationalize the strategy that comes out of these, uh, th this kind of an exercise? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> one of the quotes from the book that really struck me was that effective long-term change requires intensive short-term actions. And I, I completely agree. I, I think that there has to be 
uh, ongoing focus in the direction you want to go and and have those short-term actions be directed toward the change you want to make. Absolutely. And, you know, we also make this point about the balance between the doers and the dreamers, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you need the dreamers and and who, who need to envision where where the future is and 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 look really far ahead in terms of what are the bends in the road and and how are we going to navigate it but you know if you're but that's like a pie in the sky kind of an an outcome if you don't have the ability to to make incremental yet effective execution decisions in order to be able to fulfill what the dreamers have envisioned and you know you can be lucky where you have people who have both capabilities in them. Quite often, you may not have that. And, and in those situations, you've got to make sure that you're surrounded by both type of uh, folks, which allow you to, in, to, to see the vision, but then also allow you to make execution-oriented decisions to, to fulfill that vision. And you've got to make mm-hmm. sure that, and, and you know, by the way, the, the doers and dreamers will always have a tension in the organization. And we've observed that some organizations favor one more than the other. And invariably, that's not going to help. What you need to do is figure out as a leader, how am I going to balance these, these two kind of very important assets in the organization so that we are able to kind of build on each other rather than sort of create tension within each other. By the way, this is easier said than done, but this is a very important thing to focus on. Yeah, it's like the balance between tactical and strategic, really, and um, I mean, I've been on boards, for example, where it's 90% visionary and uh, 10%, even, even in a board setting, uh, the 10% doers. And it, it makes for challenging moving forward when you, we have an imbalance. It, it, it does. And, and also, like I said, I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, getting the balance right in reality is is much tougher than putting it down in some words in a book right and and i'm 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 very <laughs> sure. i'm completely aware of that but i do believe that making it you know bringing this out in the open and making it a part of your conscious thinking is necessary not sufficient but is necessary to get this balance right and that's what we tried to do when we mentioned this this idea in the book that let us at least make sure that business leaders are thinking about this consciously because that perhaps is, uh, is, is needed before they can get this balance right. Hmm. Well, something that you said in the book um, really surprised me and uh, perhaps I'm, I'm misreading it, but what I, I thought I read was that your research shows that 80% of CEOs and C-suite leaders are usually of, are, are of four types of strategic leadership thinking. And you, you list complacent, arrogant, cautious, and overwhelmed. So I was really shocked by the 80% figure. Can you talk a little more about that and your findings in that realm? See, the, the, the reason, I mean, this is what we have, we've observed. Uh, and, you know, obviously we could be corrected uh, by data by somebody else because this is just a sample of data that we've seen, right? Mm-hmm. Now, to, to me, this is not so much of a surprise. I mean, whether it's 80% or, or you know, perhaps somebody else finds a slightly different percent, we would still believe quite confidently that the overwhelming majority may fall into that bracket. 
again, this is not because people are not smart and that's not the way to read this. I think this is because what has happened is this is the, the, the some sense the winner's curse, right? Everybody in the C-suite today has been an overachiever. They've been rewarded in the organization mm -hmm. for doing really, really well. And right. over a period of time, that reinforces the things that they've done, which then makes them believe that this is this is the way to win because that has made me win. And, mm -hmm. and there is absolutely nothing wrong in that. What, what happens and where it becomes wrong is when you fail to recognize that the rules of the game may have changed. And, and once that happens, the, the winning strategy may no longer be all that relevant. And, and because you're in the C-suite and perhaps you're so constantly fighting fires, you haven't had the time to sit back and recalibrate yourself and realize that the game and the rules of the game may have changed. So you end up mm -hmm. in that category. So we're not in that category because we're not smart. We're in that category because of the circumstances uh, in, in the way currently organizations function and promote people to move up and, and the kind of firefighting that these people end up getting caught in, which doesn't give them to, the time to step back and think things through. And, and what do you think would help companies shift that or individuals shift that? Uh, you know, again, now <laughs> very biased answer, but I would say the ability to <laughs> take a step back and to engage in a process like what we've outlined. This to mm -hmm. me was a, an extremely important exercise. And, you know, we, we do this with senior executives that go through our classroom and they find it very valuable. In fact, they come back and tell us that, you know, we wish we had done this perhaps at an earlier point in our career, but nonetheless, we are happy that we did it now uh, because this is, you know, one of the executives once came and told me, he said, Samir, I didn't realize all this while that I was running on a treadmill and you helped me with this process by, by stopping the treadmill for a while, making me understand mm -hmm. what on earth is going on, what am I doing and where do I need to go? And now I'm ready to get back on, on a run and hopefully this time it won't be a treadmill. I'll actually be, 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 be covering some ground and not just running at the same spot. Yeah. Well, from the examples you give in your book, it's uh, it's really apparent that people shift their thinking significantly and it it, cha it shifts things. It changes things up, certainly for them. We, yeah. And, and that's been the most rewarding uh, experience for us to actually go ahead and then see how these business leaders um, uh, start working on the outcomes of this workshop in our, or our process. In, in then actually implementing it within their organization. Yeah. Many of the examples that you, you talk about um, seem to be, or perhaps require large scale uh, operations, or maybe that's just the nature of the examples that you gave, but do you think your method is suitable for smaller companies as well? Uh, I, I, I certainly believe so too. Uh, I think it's very applicable for anybody. The, the most important thing for smaller scale organizations is to realize that as they go through the defense stage of the process, it is very important for them to, to create the defense within the constraints of their reality. In the process, we ask them to create the attack in a completely unconstrained manner. 
where there is no constraint on resources on technology and so on and so forth however tag meaning i meaning they are identifying what could disrupt their company that's correct that that's it? correct yeah however when when you go into the part of the process where you start thinking about defending yourself against the attack that you just designed we very carefully asked business leaders and executives and entrepreneurs to to remind themselves of their reality which means they have limited access to resources they have limited access to technology they also have limited capabilities in the organization currently that cannot suddenly adopt and start running with new technology so being mindful of that start constructing your defense and what we find is how creatively in a in a what you know almost like a frugal manner uh, business leaders and executives and 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 entrepreneurs are able to start constructing their defense and they do so in a horizon they you know they do so in the short medium and long term where the short term is the most constraint but as we start going in the longer time horizon the medium to long run they realize that they would be able to get some resources which would help them make more radical changes rather than what they just decided in the short run so we very consciously mm. make them aware of the reality as they start thinking about you know coming up with the options of what they should be doing uh, and that kind of takes care of this uh, the scale issue that you talked about mm. okay well um we've talked quite a bit about the leaders involved in the process and and uh, coming up with new ideas for and disruptive ideas for uh, anticipating a, a future for the company but we've not talked too much about the other stakeholders and as a matter of course change is something that is typically challenging for people to do so how do you um help um the the c level folks that you're often doing this process with how do you help them to work through some of the change management aspects and bring stakeholders along and and uh really make changes in the culture i think are often necessary to make the level of change that that we're talking about you know uh so this is a very very important point and you know let's say i have a bunch of ceos in front of me and you know we've done this process with them as they're about to leave our 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 campus our corridors and going back to their their organizations i tell them that the the worst thing that they can do is take the outcome of this process that we just went to and now go and speak with your employees your teams as well as your board and tell them this is what we're going to do because i mean they're simply going to ask you that what were you doing when you were away because this is going to seem too radical for them uh right right so that's not the way to do it what i tell them is if you genuinely want to take your organization forward with something like this the best way to do this is not to tell anybody what to do but to actually go back and redo this process with them where you simply mm. become a a orchestrator of the process a moderator of the process but let your teams let your employees or let your board uh, run a, a phoenix encounter and let them themselves come up with what they think would be the strategy for the organization going forward this would one help in creating the burning platform that is common across the entire organization it will help in the change management and the urgency of things 
people will have ownership and and even an emotional attachment to all the ideas that are coming about which will then give them a lot of uh, motivation and inspiration to be a part of this change and finally which is the best part is that you will get a whole bundle of new ideas and options that perhaps you didn't even think about right now with us uh, and and so the, there's a lot of kind of benefits that come out of this in a in a in a very organic manner so what is very important is not to force your ideas on other but actually use this in a way to get everybody on the same page to get everybody on board and then move the organization forward so to to mm-hmm. to me this this part of the stage i i call this embedding that if you really want to embed change in the system then you have to do it in an organic fashion as opposed to in a very top down fashion mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's certainly uh been true in my experience and and from other companies that i've observed it's it's so important and it's it's a challenge for the leader because you get into this process you go away and and do this process you come up with some ideas that you're excited about and then by reiterating the process within the company you're not necessarily going to get agreement with the approach you were so excited about so it takes some leadership skills to manage that it, it, it does and and again to me you know at the end of the day we also have to realize that this process is not going to give you the definitive strategy what you need to do at the sure. end of the day this this process is going to generate options in front of you which is a much wider set of options than you perhaps would have had without this process once you have these options every organization should still go through a rigorous due diligence you know get the data in start doing the both the qualitative as well as the quantitative analysis you know dig further deep in before you actually start coming up with the definitive strategy so to to me the best way to think about this process is still as the the step one but there are multiple steps that should be taken after this process and that's where the convergence will start taking place that's where the 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 actual actionable ideas will start coming out so there are a few things to be done even after this process is over Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, it's kind of the work only begins in a way after the the process, at least the the in-company work begins after the process. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Well, Samir, I I I wanted to ask you one last question before we get to the rapid round and that is what has surprised you the most about uh rolling out this process and seeing how it uh, how it shows up or unfolds for people? Well, what surprised you in that the the first thing that surprised me was how easy it is for a bunch of complete industry outsiders to understand somebody's business and actually construct a complete disruption of that business in a matter of a few hours huh. and and so much so that the executive who was representing that business was completely shocked that how vulnerable they really were that to me doesn't surprise me anymore but in when we first started running this process that was a big surprise and mm-hmm. and it it was quite 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 stark to be to be honest the second mm-hmm. thing that surprised me was that as companies and executives along with their you know you know teammates who are working with them start constructing their defense part and start thinking about what are the options in front of them in terms of 
how their strategy could evolve. The surprise is how different it was from what they previously thought would have been their strategy prior to doing this process. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the delta between where they thought they should have headed versus where they, after this process, think they should be heading. That, the, the gap between that is actually quite, quite amazing. Sometimes hmm. uh, it is completely, completely the opposite of the direction in which they were going. We document many of those stories in the book where we show how different the pre and post strategy playbook look, right? These two things are very, very surprising. Well, and it speaks to the effectiveness of the process in terms of uh, coming up with unique ideas and perspectives, which is kind of the point. So it's it's a good affirmation. And um, yeah, and I'm, I'm it's interesting that uh, outsiders can have such a good perspective. I mean, I've always thought that if you have a solid understanding of business, the the and have kind of a basic understanding of a business, you can still um, do quite a bit of work with a company like that. You can still have insights and you bring other industry perspectives to it. So um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. Yeah. Well, Samir, I I, uh, always end these interviews with a rapid round of questions about impact. Are you ready? Sure. The first question is, what's the biggest thing that you've learned about having impact? My biggest observation is uh, that impact comes from extremely strong uh, desire to actually do things which which we which will be remembered uh, for a very long period of time which is what i would call as future readiness as opposed to short term mm. and medium term uh, kind of readiness so i like to think of impact as long term uh, future proofing your business your 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 ideas or whatever it is so it's the time horizon that is very important for me. Hmm, interesting. Well, the second question is, what's the one thing that you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? I think so far, I would like to believe that it is getting as much diverse perspective as possible. Um, hmm. I've been lucky to be surrounded by people who are not only well-wishers, but also think uh, very differently than I do. And, and, and that to me is, and, and constantly taking their guidance, constantly you know, hearing their perspective, I believe has helped me uh, tremendously. Hmm, that's great. Well, and the last question is, what's one piece of advice or an insight that you'd share with a business owner who's asking themselves, how can I have a bigger positive impact? Well, what I would say is make sure that you, you, don't, get, um, you don't get into blinkered thinking. Scan widely, scan what is happening in the world outside of your, you know, uh, your, your kind of micro uh, ecosystem, outside of your geography, outside of your industry, and see what's going on, learn from them, and then understand what could this mean to your uh, kind of world uh, in the long run. So 
so so think think big both in terms of you know the width of things where you look at and also the depth in terms of the time horizon that you're looking at hmm that's great well samir thank you so much for joining us today i'm i'm fascinated by this process that you and your colleagues have developed and uh, thank you for sharing some of the things you've found in that process and and what's really helpful to companies in uh, creating the kind of dis- disruptive change that's going to allow them to be sustainable in the long term. Well, Ursula, thanks a lot for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you and, and sharing some of, uh, some of the things that we've been working on and excited about. If uh, people want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach you and how can they get how can they find your book? Where can they find it? So, you know, I'll give away two websites uh, which I think will have all the information available. So the first one is just my website. It's uh, samirhasija.com. That's my first name and last name.com. Uh, this is a place they'll get all my contact information. I I keep it quite updated, where I upload you know videos and 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 other uh, writings that I that I do, and so they can get information there. Uh, there's also information about the book on that website, so that that perhaps is a one-stop shop for everybody. There's also a book website called thephoenixencountermethod.com, uh, where you can go on 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 that. You can register yourself, and should you do that, you know we'll send you newsletters and updates about various things we are doing. You get information about where to buy the book and, and all sorts of other relevant information related to the book. So, you know, these two websites should be, should be good enough for, for any information that is needed. Uh, and, and hopefully, um, hopefully and, and just, just to let your listeners know, uh, should, you, should you wanna get in touch and, and you write to us, uh, me and my co-authors, we are, you know, we're very happy to get back to you and, and you know, share our thoughts and ideas with you. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Samir. Ursula, thanks a lot. And again, I appreciate the opportunity to come here and speak with you and and your listeners. Thanks for listening. Join me for more episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and help us spread the word. Rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. To discover more about your impact, schedule a business impact assessment one-on-one with me 60 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Go to workalchemy.com BIA to schedule your business impact assessment. This podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Cherokee, Tuscarora, Catawba, and Waccamaw Sioux and people. 